Grasping the firing handles and pressing my thumbs on the trigger lever, I fired without taking aim into the gray mass in front of us. Steam now was coming from the escape plug near the muzzle as the water in the barrel casing began to reach boiling point. Belt after belt of cartridges went through her till I began to think our ammunition supply must be getting low. Still, those gray clad figures came on. Hundreds of them, dead and wounded, lay out in no man's land. Whereas before the attack I had been shivering, I was now wet with perspiration. Welcome back to Over the Top, a great war podcast. That was a passage by Private William Quinton, a machine gunner from the 2nd Bedfordshire Regiment describing his first contact with the Germans in Ypres. I hope everyone's in good health still. I hope everyone is safe. And by safe, I mean staying away from mass gatherings and other nutty things you see people doing. Folks, these are crazy times we're living in. On the last episode... I said cities were shutting down. Now states and whole countries are shutting down. The state of California where I'm living is on the stay-at-home program till I believe it's the 30th of April. I was going to do an episode on the Spanish influenza, or better known as the Spanish flu. But, eh, you know, I just don't think it was appropriate. Not with everyone on edge. Death toll around the world is increasing drastically. I just felt this wasn't the time. I mean, I'm still going to do an episode on it, but not till much later down the road when Americans join the war. Just a quick fact about it, though. The Spanish influenza kicked off in the United States at a military base, and I believe it was Kansas. I'm not positive about that. It was the American troops that brought it to Europe. And, well, the rest is history. But again, I'll have an episode on that much later down the road. It's really interesting. What did you think of the first biography episode? Harry Patch, huh? He lived such an extraordinary long life. I was thinking about him all week after I released that episode. It just amazes me how much one person can see during his or her lifetime and what they have to survive through to get to that point of that old age. I mean, it's such a long time. Also, a listener reached out to me and corrected my pronunciation of Harry's hometown of Combedown. That's how I pronounced it on the last episode. It's pronounced Combedown. So I can see the difference there. I apologize again for my mispronunciations for a lot of people, places, and things I'm discussing. Sometimes proper English versus American English is different. Then there's German and French. Actually, I'm comfortable with a German because I study the language for a short period of time. But overall, it's challenging for a person who's pretty much a caveman, myself. I'm trying my best, and I hope this won't persuade anyone to turn away from the podcast. And I absolutely appreciate the corrections you send to me. All right, let's talk about what I'm drinking for this episode. 
I'm drinking a Guinness drought in the can. Oh, so creamy. So good. No, not the toilet can. Although, I've been known to take drinks in there and even in the shower. No, I'm drinking the beer in an aluminum can just to clear that up. And why am I drinking Guinness? Because I wanted something that looked like mud. And why mud? Because things are about to get real dirty for the men who fought on either front during this time. And another random fact. Arthur Guinness founded the St. James Gate Brewery in 1759, in which he signed a 9,000-year lease for 45 euros a year. Or I guess that's what is equivalent to 45 euros today. Obviously, they didn't have euros back then. I'm not really sure what currency the Irish were using in 1759. Anyhow, Guinness merged with a British company in 1997, in which they also bought out the original lease. Still, Guinness is a good beer, but yet it's still sad. I can only think of one non-craft brewery that is still family-owned and operated. The oldest brewery in the United States, Yingling. Sucks we can't get it on the West Coast. But enough about beer and coronavirus, folks, let's talk about the Great War. After I take another sip of my beer. All right. We're now in autumn of 1914. After the Battle of the Aisne, the French, British, and Germans pushed the trench line up to the coast of Belgium. Each side tried to get around their opponent's northern flank. During the first stages of the race to the sea, the BEF remained dug in in the Aisne, and it was the French and Germans who first battled their way north with heavy fighting that resulted in a lot of bloodshed. My son was watching an old pride fight on YouTube a few weeks back. It was the fight between Dan Fry and Takayama. Okay, if you like MMA or fighting, you must watch this fight if you've never seen it. These two beasts immediately lock up after the sound of the bell and just start beating the piss out of each other's face. I mean, they locked up face to face, just pounding each other. It's insane. And in a metaphorical sense, if that's the right word to use, this is kind of what it was like for the French and the Germans during this game of leapfrog. These two beasts would lock up, go toe to toe, beat the piss out of each other. Then one tries to outflank the other, it gets blocked, and they lock back up and repeat the process. But unlike Fry and Takayama, there was no winner. Hundreds of men, no, thousands of men, didn't just stumble their way back to the dressing room. Many were killed. You know, the typical shot through the head, limbs ripped off, sucking chest wounds, guts spilled out, and some wounded couldn't get help and would just bleed out, and often left where they dropped. They couldn't just stop and start digging graves under these conditions. The muddy earth engulfed the corpses one by one and the blood that was shed with it. Have you ever heard of that saying, blood makes the grass grow green? This would explain why the Western Front today is so green. Neither side could claim any sort of victory during the movement north. All it did was expand the battlefield. And you might be saying, why didn't the Germans just pound them with their big guns? Think about it. 
Those siege guns are massive. It takes a lot of resources to move those guns. The gun teams wouldn't have been able to keep up with the movement. And why the push north? Why was this so important to both sides? Well, aside from one side trying to outflank their opponent to encircle them, the north had key port cities that each side was trying to get control of and not let fall into the hands of the enemy. The port cities like Boulogne, Dunkirk, Olsten, and Antwerp, which is where the Belgium army was trapped. The trenches now stretch from Newport, Belgium, down past Verdun, through Alsace and Lorraine, facing the Vosges mountain range. That's a long stretch of land to run a trench line. This now moved the attention of battle on the Western Front from the Aisne up to Northern Belgium. And by no means does that mean in the South they kicked their feet up and took naps underneath the trees all day. It just means leaders like Falkenhayn and Sir Jean French were putting their attention and much more needed resources on Belgium. But this episode is going to cover more than just the Western Front. There's still the Eastern Front to cover and Winston Churchill coming to help the Belgians with the Marines and the support of his Navy. I'm going to do some jumping back and forth on this episode. There's a lot happening in the fall of 1914. So get cozy, grab yourself a drink of choice, and enjoy. Oh, yeah. On the Western Front, the French, British, and Germans were equally battered, bruised, tired, low on supplies, and seen way too much dead for any one person to see, especially in that short period of time. For the men who survived from the start, the thought of a hot bath and a warm meal would be like us hitting a jackpot on a slot machine, an overwhelming feeling of joy and comfort. If you haven't showered in weeks or maybe months, that feeling of a hot shower, it's a feeling of joy only those who know what I'm talking about will know. At this point, the French were running dangerously low on shells for the 75mm cannon, their most effective and trusted artillery piece so far. Between all the French gun teams, they were firing around 50,000 rounds per day, but only 10,000 a day were being produced. Let me calculate that. As I suspected, that's not good. Each side was optimistic this war could be won. Sir John French believed that at one point his troops would be in Berlin within six weeks. That goes back to the line the higher-ups fed to the troops before the war started of, we'll be home by Christmas. Confidence is one thing, but an overzealous attitude in war can be dangerous. French was cocky because with all the deaths up to this point, there was nothing to show for it. I'll say that again. There was absolutely nothing to show from any battle won by either side for all the lives that had been lost up to this point. For the governments, the aristocrats, and the generals, this war had become self-perpetuating and self-justifying. No life mattered. They were willing to expend any amount to achieve victory. General von Falkenhayn had two major objectives on the Western Front since taking over as Chief of Staff. First was to fix the gap on the right wing, and second was to take Antwerp, the last stronghold of the Belgian army and one of the largest ports in the North Sea at the time. I think Rotterdam is now the largest port in Europe. Not positive, though. 
I just remember hearing that. Such a cool city. Underrated in my opinion. Everyone talks about Amsterdam, but with those crowds, I would go to Rotterdam. They got cube homes, windmills not too far off, quirky buildings, a market hall with foodie, foodie food, cool breweries. The Netherlands itself is so fun. I would really like to visit again soon. But that doesn't matter. I'm getting way off topic with that. To strengthen his right flank, Falkenhayn ordered the 6th and 7th armies from Alsace and Lorraine to move up and take control of the River Somme. They would be replaced in the south by new armies being formed. And think about this. Think about the resources needed back then to move two armies. I mean, think about the resources it takes to move even two divisions today. Two full armies is a lot of troops. It's estimated around 140 trains were needed to move just one army. This was a major adjustment by Falkenhayn, and the plan on paper sounded good because if they could break through and take control of the area around the Somme, this meant they still had a chance to take Paris, which was still the objective. Remember, Paris was the heart of France back then, and aside from it being the capital, I don't think I'm off by saying it still is the heartbeat of France today. If Paris falls, France falls. If the Huns took Paris, the French army would eventually crumble. However, for Falkenhayn's plan to succeed, he was counting on the Pailus not putting up a fight. Would they defend the area around northern France? Well, the Pailus were ready. Falkenhayn's objective to take the Somme was stopped by the newly formed French 10th Army. The brave French soldiers stood strong, fought hard, and pushed the Huns back. Have you ever seen that movie, Three O'Clock High? The story of the nerdy underdog Jerry Mitchell versus the new kid, the mean Buddy Ravel? <laughs> Jerry is the writer for his school paper and tries to ask Buddy some questions at the urinal. Buddy tells him to mind his business, so Jerry says, ah, forget about it, and kind of touches him, slaps a Buddy on the shoulder. Well, this irritates Buddy, so he tells Jerry, they're going to fight after school. You and me are going to fight after school, Jerry. Three o'clock. This was the original, not the Ice Cube remake. Spoiler, the underdog wins. It's such a classic. Anyway, this was the new form 10th underdogs versus the 6th and 7th battle hardened Huns. And the underdog pulled it off. The 10th stood their ground, kind of like Jerry Mitchell, and punched back hard enough to drive the Germans back. The first part of the plan didn't work out so much for Falkenhayn, so this left Antwerp, with much more fortified state-of-the-art forts than Liège. But the Germans still had an answer to that problem, the siege guns at the Aisne. They began moving them to Antwerp. And at this time, the British were in discussions about moving their army up to Belgium. Sir Henry Wilson, the BEF's deputy chief of staff, suggested moving his troops from France and placing them in Flanders, west of the French line. Wilson believed this was the best position for his troops with supplies and reinforcements arriving at the ports nearby. And when Winston Churchill, who was then serving as the first Lord of Admiralty, pointed out that if the BEF were in Flanders, the big guns from the Royal Navy would be able to support them. 
This would come from ships like the pre-dreadnought Venerable. Sir John French, who was first reluctant because he saw the benefit by having Joffre's armies supporting his left and right, was now sold on moving the troops to Flanders after hearing Churchill's advice. Sorry keep saying Flanders. If anybody doesn't know what this is, it's the northern Flemish region of Belgium that's dominated by the Dutch language. The capital is Brussels, and this is also where Antwerp and Ypres lie. Flanders Fields is the name of the battlefields that took place in Flanders. By moving the boys into Flanders, if the BEF needed to pop smoke and get out of Dodge quickly, having the army close to the ports would make an easy getaway. Sir John, in a rush, began moving his troops towards Ypres against Joffre's wishes, who asked French to move cautiously and slowly as not to provoke new German attacks. And when French didn't listen, Joffre of course blamed him for new successful German attacks along the Aisne. This is also when the Germans successfully took the city of Lille. Joffre was becoming worried about the situation on the left of his flank. He moved his second army under the command of General Foch into Flanders to join the British. Ferdinand Foch, a famed academic, had the ability to inspire those around him with his vigor and smart decisions. He left a good impression with Sir John, who described him saying, quote, In appearance, he is slight and small in stature, albeit with a most wiry and active frame. It is in his eyes and the expression of his face that one sees his extraordinary power. He appreciates a military situation like lightning with marvelous accuracy and evinces wonderful skill and versatility in dealing with it. Animated by a consuming energy, his constant exclamation, Attack! 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 reflected his state of mind, and there can be no doubt that he imbued his troops with much of his spirit. Sir John French. End quote. The Huns moved the siege guns into position and began crushing the city of Antwerp. They took the hammer fist and began to pound the city into submission. Citizens were fleeing in the streets, buildings were on fire, and some were already brought down into piles of rubble. Some of the British and Belgian soldiers had nowhere to run. Some jumped into boats and headed for the Netherlands. Dead bodies littered the port town. The Germans successfully sieged Antwerp. Sound the alarm. We have a problem. Germany had a sizable, dangerous navy at this point, and now they seized the largest port city. Churchill, not afraid of a fight, grabbed a small group of marines to assist the Belgian army defending the city. He pleaded back home for more help, but help never came. 
They fought hard and bravely, but the German army was too much for them to handle. They needed more than just a small group of Marines in what remained of the Belgian army. And look, I'm not going to rag on Churchill too much, but this was about the time he started acting like a jackass. He starts demanding to get this big promotion in order to take control of the situation. There's a time for that, and there's also not a good time for that. This happened to be not a good time for that kind of demand. Maybe get through this, then we'll see what happens. Higher up started to think he was overplaying the situation to get the promotion, so they didn't send help. By the 6th of October, after round-the-clock shelling, the Belgian king decided Antwerp couldn't be saved. By pulling out, this was the only way he could save what remained of his army. Churchill immediately departed from home to tell the higher-ups just what he thought about him not getting that promotion and the bad situation Flanders was in. And a day later, 60,000 beaten Belgian troops under the command of their king pulled back to the river Azer, north of Ypres. This is when the Battle of Azer opened. Actually, let me back up. By now, technically the first Battle of Ypres had started before the Battle of Azer broke out. Ypres started on the 14th of October and Azer started on the 18th. But I'm going to cover the Azer on this episode and on the next episode, I'll swing back to the first Battle of Ypres because there's a lot to talk about. Ypres is a nasty place. As the Belgians started arriving at the Azer Canal, the British were moving into position on the western side of Ypres while Foch's army was moving to the south. Azer's low-level wetlands were surrounded by a network of drainage canals that regulated water levels, and the main drainage pumping station was in Newport. The German 3rd Reserve Corps, just right of the German 4th Army, began attacking and heavily bombarding the Belgians at the canals on the 18th of October. With the help of the British naval ships off the coast, they started shelling the Germans, driving them back to Olsten, just north of Newport. Over the next four days, the Germans continued their assaults. And on the 22nd of October, they drove the Belgians back to Dixmude, about 12 miles outside of Newport. The next couple days, French troops began arriving to support the Belgians, and they too suffered heavy losses. Then, on the 25th of October, the unthinkable happened. The unimaginable. Something you would think was never possible. The word terror can't describe it. Belgian King Albert, fearing the Germans would break through and take Dunkirk and Calais, desperate with no other choice, opened the canal locks in Newport and flooded the low land of Acer. The seawater rushed in on the Huns, first up to their boots, then quickly the water was up to their knees and rising forcing them back to Ypres. They had to slowly wade their way out. I know, I know. You thought I was going to say something crazy, right? But in all seriousness, Albert was desperate, and this was his way of putting his middle finger to the Kaiser and his troops, telling them, 
I would rather see it flood than fall into your hands. And the plan worked. It drove the Germans to retreat. The Germans did end up taking Dixmude on the 10th of November, but they never took the town of Newport through the duration of the war. The end to the resistance in Antwerp also freed up about four corps of German soldiers to support other German upcoming offenses in Flanders. Also, other German corps began to arrive in Belgium stacked with fresh, new, barely trained recruits. Many of them were student volunteers. So let me pause the Ypres button right here, which I'll return to you on the next episode so I can switch over to the Eastern Front, the other Falkenhayn problem. The war in the East was stretching the front over 500 miles, with the threat of the Russian troop numbers continuing to grow. The defeat of the Russians at Tannenberg was a major accomplishment for Hindenburg and Ludendorff. Not only did they save the Prussian homeland from enemy invaders, they also took over 92,000 prisoners with over 50,000 enemies killed or wounded. Even after the collapse of Samsonov's army, General Rennenkampf refused to accept defeat. During a massive retreat, he halted, turned his first army around, and duked it out with the German 8th Army at Mashirian Lakes. This was in a Russian victory, however they did stop the Germans in their tracks. But one advantage the Russians did have, they could move quickly and they were a massive force. And Rennenkampf's first army was just a fraction of Russia's overall force. The majority were at the Polish salient facing the Austrians, which line ran from the crests of the Carpathian Eastern mountain range down to the Hungarian plain leading to the heart of Austria. The Germans had another problem, their allies, the Austrians. By now, the Austrians had lost over 325,000 men compared to the 225,000 overall loss of the Russians. And for the Russians, this wasn't a problem. They had many, many more men to fill the ranks. This was, however, an issue for the Austrians and the Germans. See, the Austrians couldn't fill those ranks like the Russians could. And Germany couldn't afford to let their ally fall, so they formed a new 9th Army to join them. The 9th linked up with the Austrians and began their advance into Russian Poland and then the Vistula by early October. The Stavka, which is Russian High Command, received good intelligence that the Germans had been concentrated in Silesia and was advancing towards Warsaw. When the German 9th appeared in the center of Silesia, the Russian 4th and 9th armies moved from Warsaw to put up a fight, supported by their 2nd, 5th, and 1st armies who would flank the Germans. The Russians were also being supported by Serbian units who had moved from the Carpathian Mountains. North of Warsaw during the Battle of Augusto, from the 29th of September through the 5th of October, the Russian 10th Army put a damper on the German 8th Army's confidence after their victory at Tannenberg. At Augusto, the Huns failed to entrench themselves and the Russians started successfully positioning themselves to, to strategically outmaneuver and hit hard on the 8th German Army. Now, the 10th was giving it right back to them in vengeance for Tannenberg. However, Hind and Lude were better than that. The Russians eventually were checked. By early October, there were four fronts in the east. 
a German-Russian front in East Prussia, an Austro-German-Russian front on the Vistula, a Russian-Austrian front on the San, and a Russian-Austrian front in the Eastern Carpathians. All the fronts combined extended around 500 miles. Hindenburg and Ludendorff believed the Russians were not in strength at Warsaw. The 9th German Army was marching down the west bank of the Vistula River, heading right for Warsaw. However, the Russians were preparing to cross the Vistula from the east to launch their own offensive. Here is the problem for the German 9th. Their only means of transportation was horses and the soldiers' feet. They wouldn't be able to move around quickly enough to encircle the Russians who seemed to move quite quickly. Another problem was that the Russians outnumbered the Germans and Austrians put together. From Warsaw to Przemysl, the Russians deployed 55 divisions against the 31 Austrians and 13 Germans. On October 18th, Ludendorff realized and appreciated that his army would be in immediate danger and he continued to push onto Warsaw, making what I consider a wise decision. He decided to withdraw his troops. However, Konrad von Hotzendorf, the Austrian field marshal, thought differently. He followed the Russians from Przemysl to the Sand and tried to attack at Ivangorod on the 22nd of October. Ivangorod is known as Deblin today. The ending result of this battle for Conrad was 40,000 men from his first army were killed and he retreated on the 26th of October. The Eastern Front was extremely massive. There were so many Russian soldiers involved, yet there's very little personal accounts from Russian grunts who served in the trenches or the front lines. And why is this? In John Keegan's book, The First World War, he explains that 80% of their force were peasants, and a good majority of those peasants were illiterate. They left no literature, unlike the soldiers on the Western Front. Personal accounts were rare. And personal accounts by the Austrians are just as rare as the Russians because of the extent of their loss. Spoiler alert, the Habsburg Empire fell after the war. For those Austrians who served on the front and survived, they had been defeated. Things were never the same, and they would rather have forgotten about this horrible war and not even write about it. The difference between the Western and Eastern fronts in 1914 was that by the time the Battle of the Marne kicked off, those troops were getting down and firing from covered positions, especially more at the Aisne. But on the Eastern Front, they were still fighting like they did during the Napoleonic Wars. They were standing up, firing, assaulting in massive formations, only to be met by another massive force who clashed with them head on. They hadn't so much grasped the concept of getting behind cover and then firing. This resulted in mass casualties. I don't have an exact number off the top of my head, but I would say the casualty count on the Eastern Front up to this point was looming towards a million. I'm sure somebody out there has a solid number, but I'm guessing I'm somewhere in the ballpark with that. Fall is my favorite time of year. But for Europe, autumn in 1914 was no paradise. Nobody noticed the leaves changing colors, then falling. 
Bavarian soldiers weren't thinking about Oktoberfest. They weren't caring about the cool air coming in, cooling them off after a hot summer. No. Instead, it was becoming plagued by a dark damsel of death, dancing her way through the fronts, claiming victim after victim. Fall was now littered with the dead. And I'm going to start wrapping this up right here. On the next episode, I'll go back to the first battle of the Ypres, and I'll end the year 1914 with some winter battles, more dead, and an event which soldiers referred to as a truce. This episode's Great War recommendation is... Well, first let me say this. I tried watching Lawrence of Arabia, but that movie is just too damn long for me. It's good, but it's just long. So long they needed an intermission. I only made it through the first half. So I decided on All Quiet on the Western Front, the 1979 version. Although it goes against my stance on it should have been in German with German actors, that would have made the movie much better and still good. If you're new to history and you haven't read the book or watched the movie, do so. Actually, read the book. It's actually much better than the movie. Hearing English actors with English accents playing World War I German soldiers. Yeah, now it's really bothering me. Go read the book. I'm all confused for on this recommendation. I mean, look, let's face it. You probably got the time on your hands at the moment. Just do both. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you for all your support, and I really mean that. If you're on social media, please follow the show on Instagram and Facebook. Whichever pla platform you listen to the show on, it would be much appreciated if you'd leave me a review. You can also email the show at ottgwpodcast at gmail.com. Everyone, please stay healthy, and I really hope this whole COVID-19 thing is over very soon. Take care, everyone. <laughs>